Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm really excited about the conversation today. We are going to be talking about how you can motivate yourself and others And within that, the art of mental toughness with the amazing Lauren Johnson. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. Do you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? I was an athlete my whole life and then turned mental performance coach. I was injured my senior year of college and I ended up finding this field called sports psychology. Didn't know anything about it before and fell completely in love with it. And a part of me was because I think I, I, I was the athlete that needed it, to be honest with you. And so when I found it, it was so interesting to me because it was a part of performance I had never knew I had control over, or I never knew I could impact or influence. So it took me on to get my master's degree in performance psychology. Then I went on to work for the New York Yankees for four years, and now I have my own consulting company, and I work with CEOs, Fortune 500 companies, and professional athletes just on developing the mental side of performance to create sustainability. Incredible. And a question for you on that then is the difference, I guess, that you get between speaking to a CEO or a business leader and how you would coach them versus an athlete? The differences really lie in the language that is used. So I like to say it's just like speaking a different language. The, instead of speaking, you know, baseball and talking about being on the mound or being in the World Series or being on the soccer field or anything like that, now I'm speaking about being in the boardroom, being in front of your client. So the language that we use changes and how it gets applied is slightly different. But a lot of the principles, those are the principles of the human mind, the principles of psychology. So those don't change as much as it does in terms of how we apply them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that we're starting to see also a lot more of that kind of language coming into the, you know, quote, boardrooms and business conversations about how we enable great leadership and how we coach our employees. And sports psychology is that really proactively linking in what's happening inside of your mind and your, I guess, your inner thoughts and feelings with your physical state and your body? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of research around this, but essentially how it kind of goes a lot of times is that your thoughts impact how you feel. Mm. How you feel impacts your physiology and your physiology impacts your performance. And so they're all interlinked. And they can be interlinked in different ways as well. Your physiology can impact your psychology and, and many other ways. However, they are interconnected. And if we influence one, it'll influence the other and vice versa. And so we can learn how to actually use the science and these tools and strategies to be able to impact our abilities and how we think in the biggest moments um, and, and when, we, when, it need, when we need it most. Because it's one thing to have a really good skill. But can you perform that skill when it matters most, when there's pressure, when you're against really good competition, when maybe something, a, a terrible obstacle you, you had to face and circumstances changed? That's really where mental performance lies. And is that the starting point of that? Is that about self-awareness and recognizing how you are coping with something or how you are feeling about something? Versus, I guess, probably what most people think is like jumping straight into 
action and solution mode? Oh, absolutely. It's Viktor Frankl said this that in between in between stimulus and response there is a space. And a lot of times we are very reactionary. Like we feel something happens and we act on how we feel. Something happens and we act on our emotions. But really there is a space in between those two things and that space is where our power lies. We can't always choose our thoughts. We can't always choose how we feel, but we can choose how we respond to those two things. And to your point, there's things that we have control over and there's things that we can't. And that really comes down to self-awareness. You can't change anything that you're not aware of. And so awareness really is the foundation of of a lot of the work that we do. Mm. And so I guess I'm, I'm trying to think about like if I'm and I'm and I'm not an athlete and I'm not a very active person just to put that out there. But I can imagine that if you're physically exhausted and I guess that also goes for like when you're in a professional office environment, you get physically exhausted and burnt out as well, that that would be like a step one is even recognizing that you've reached that point. Whereas I can imagine a lot of people keep pushing past the point of exhaustion. Yeah. And, and not only physical exhaustion, but there's such thing as mental exhaustion too. And which probably gets experienced a lot more in the business world is you have like a million tabs open and it gets really hard to decipher and prioritize what's important. And I like to use this analogy of a formula one pit stop. And when they pit stop, it's, it's pretty incredible. Pit stops have evolved over time. They used to take like you know, minutes on end, like 10, 20 minutes. Now they're down to seconds. And the cool thing about pit stops is um, everybody does them. But the question is like, how do you know when to pit stop? Like, and why do you pit stop? And so I like to think about this too, when we are feeling mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted, is oftentimes high performers, we go until we can't go anymore. And the thing that stops us is oftentimes burnout. But what if you didn't have to wait to burn out to stop? And so when I look at a pit stop, the question's like, okay, why do they do it? It's a proactive response to long-term performance. Like it's a proactive approach to long-term performance. And so pit stopping, actually, you're, you're giving up your place in the race. It is not beneficial to do that. But it is beneficial because you know if you wait too long and your tires wear out, you're going to be in a much worse position than if you go and you exchange them before that happens. What are your signals to pit stop? Is it maybe, you know, when you feel like I am so disorganized in my mind, I don't even know where to go next? I know for me, when I get short with my husband, and he will agree with this, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's a signal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first understanding your signals, that's the self-awareness piece. And then the second part, which is even more important, is now that you know when to pit stop, what do you do when you do take a pit stop? How do you refuel when you do? And so for, again, Formula One, they, you know, they add fuel to the car, they change the tires, they maybe fix alignment. And for us, I know for myself, one of the things I do to refuel is I actually have to get up and get out of the current environment I'm in. Mm. And so do you think a part of the issue then is that oftentimes we overestimate how much we can handle and how much we can just keep going and keep keep moving through? Because there's, there's also like this mentality, particularly in the corporate space of resilience and perseverance and just keep pushing through and keep going to the next day. And it's it's very cyclical, that kind of mindset. So is there an, an overstating of our own capacity? 
Yeah, I think oftentimes we overestimate what we can do in a day and we underestimate what we can do in a month. There is a, the law of diminishing returns is that, you know, when you keep going to a certain point, suddenly the returns are begin to diminish. It's like we, that we only get a return to a certain point. And then when we start to go past that, it actually begins to go down. And so the question becomes like, where does that boundary begin and end? Like, where does it help you? And then where does it hurt you? And I, I, it's kind of like a curvilinear graph is that effort is great, but we have to think about when does it actually begin to hurt us over time? What gives you the best return on your investment? And oftentimes getting sleep, drinking water, giving yourself time to reset, gives you a better rate of return than not getting yourself that stuff at all. And it sounds very like core foundational to being a human being, right? It's just those things of like, actually just let your body recover and recuperate versus I think, you know, like even for me this morning, I had a 7 a.m. meeting. I'm like, I can get by on five hours of sleep. Like that, you know, every once in a while it's okay. And then it turns into like four days a week and, you know, actually just doing like the core, the the bare minimum of, I guess that like sleeping would be your pit stop as well. And in a lot of ways, right. It's just letting your body actually get repaired. Absolutely. And there's, there's this great um, analogy. And sometimes this is very helpful in terms of thinking about what are those core things that should be our non-negotiables that are the foundation that, that impact all areas of performance. And it's this idea of archways in architecture. And one of the most beautiful archways I've ever been able to go see was the Colosseum. There's several of them built in the Colosseum. And if you look at any architectural archway, what you'll notice is that they're all kind of built similarly where they're built. They start by building the sides of them and they stack the bricks all the way up till they get to the center. And in the center is a one stone and it's called the keystone. And it's what holds the entire archway in place. And it's similar to our habits that we all have keystone habits that if it's there, it really holds up everything else in performance. And when they're not, when it's removed, everything gets impacted by it. And it, it, you know, it, it can crumble uh, an archway. And so I like to ask the question, you know, what are your keystone habits? What are those things that when you execute these, when you put these at the foundation, they impact all other areas of your life. I know for me, that is 100% my sleep, that is my nutrition, and that is my physical activity. When I do those three things, everything else is impacted positively. When I don't get sleep, when I eat like crap, when I don't make time for physical activity, the other things begin to suffer. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine then that what you would hear a lot from people is that I, like, I just don't have the time. Like I, I don't have the time to be able to get exercise in, in the day because I'm working on this big project or there's just so much going on or something has to give. So how do you help people to sort of work out how they should be prioritizing their keystone habits, obviously, but also how do they still manage to deliver on the things that are core to, for example, their job without sacrificing their performance or I guess their ambitions but not sacrificing their own, I guess, mental health and, and their own physical performance as well? Well, there's, there's kind of two ways 
two approaches to that, which is number one, sometimes we aren't even aware of the things that are waste, we're wasting our energy on and wasting our time. So the first thing is I'd want you to audit your current habits and your current daily routines. And so I would want you to kind of write all that stuff out. Where's your time being spent? And then I would want you to grade that. Hmm. And is it adding to your day? And then put like a plus next to it. Is it taking away from your day? Like this is not, I'm not benefiting from this. Maybe it's social media or (laughs) other things, right? You know, just your phone in general, I get distracted by that. And that's actually taking time away. So you can put a minus next to that. And then for things that really have no bearing, it's like, you know, brushing your teeth. It doesn't really take time, but it's also like, I don't want a cavity. So it's kind of, that's more neutral. And once you grade those, then you're going to get a really good idea of where your time is being spent and if you're spending it in the best places. And so first, I'd want you to audit. Now, I've never had anybody run an audit on their own daily behaviors and not had minuses. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say, let's say you got all pluses, right? This is like all plus and neutral. Like I'm doing everything right and I still can't find the time. Then what I do is there's a great rule, and James Clear talks about this in his book, Atomic Habits. He talks about the two-minute rule, and it's taking any habit or anything that you want to do on a consistent basis and really breaking it down to doing it in two minutes. And what we're doing is we're making it so easy that it's like hard not to do. And okay, so instead of going to the gym for an hour, can you just do push-ups for two minutes? Instead of going and, or instead of reading for 30 minutes, can you read for two minutes or can you read two paragraphs? And so what we're doing is we're really scaling it down to its smallest level. And if you can remain consistent there, then we can add on top of it. Because he always says that you can't, you can't improve on a habit until you have one established. So maybe you don't have any of these habits established yet. Okay, well then let's, let's shrink that habit down to its most basic form in a two minute setting. And then we can increase the intensity as we become consistent within it. And the reason two things are going to happen here. Number one, you're going to start to remain consistent and develop a routine in a positive direction for something you actually, that actually adds. And number two, you're going to feel accomplished because instead of saying, well, if I don't go all in, I'm not going to do it at all. You're actually still showing up. So you're creating the habit of consistency. A lot of times, if we don't meet the intensity of what we want, we actually just don't do it at all. But I don't care as much about intensity as I do consistency. Intensity can be turned up or turned down based on the circumstances of life. But I'd rather you do something than nothing. 10 push-ups is better than no push-ups. Two paragraphs read is better than no paragraphs read. So one question that I had for you as a perfectionist is, what kind of guidance do you give to people who do feel like their intensity is always turned up because they have these really high standards for themselves. Oh yeah. Um, you're speaking to one. (laughs) Um, so I I feel you there. Mm. Um, it's funny. A lot of the times, like the stuff that I talk about or somebody said this, they said, we teach the things that we need the most. And so I think when I teach a lot of these things, it's because I I'm telling you, I am somebody that needs it more than anybody else. So when you say like, hey, for somebody that's a perfectionist, man, you're speaking to a, you know, a self-defined perfectionist here. Mm. And that, that was always really hard for me because I'm always like, well, if I don't do it, then what is the point? It's a waste of time. But what I realized is that by believing it was a waste, I was less consistent with my habits because I couldn't stick with them long enough because life inevitably, inevitably happened. 
And instead of giving myself grace and being mentally flexible, I broke every time life presented itself. And so we want to be, we want to be flexible. We want to bend and not break because it's not necessarily about being perfect. Consistent consistency is an average. It's not perfect. It doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake, (laughs) but it's an average over time. And so how can we improve our average over time? And so when it comes to that, for instance, one of my, one of the habits that is a non-negotiable for me is reading. When I read and I learn even something small every single day, it really impacts my ability and what I do. It just, I, it, it raises my ability. So there are some nights I call it mush brain where my brain is like a pot of jello <laughs> and I just have nothing left to give and I can't even like take in any more information. So on those days, instead of reading 20 minutes, which is always my goal, I will literally read one paragraph, but it's amazing how much that impacts me because I still feel like, all right, I still showed up and did what I said I was going to do. And that's where trust comes from is when we show up and do the things we say we're going to do. And so that impacts us from a psychological perspective in so many ways. Now, for somebody that is a perfectionist, there was a there's a great sports psych. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but very famous in our field. And he used to say this, he goes, are you that bad that you have to have your A game to perform your best? And so it's, it always stuck with me because I'm like, you're, you're right. Like I can still perform at a high level even if I have my B game or my C game that day. And so the question kind of becomes, is it so important to be the best or to be your best? And to be your best, it's, it may look different day to day based on you know what life throws at you. Oh my gosh, yes. But I do sometimes feel like my perfectionism extends beyond the, the realms of logic and extends to other people in those situations around me. So I can't control the quality output of other people or you know the agencies that you work with, for example, or the people that you work with. So is there a little bit of a training element there for you as well in being comfortable that other people also have to perform at their best, not the best or your version of what's best. Yeah. Um, it's funny because everybody that I work with, they come to me and they, there's nobody that comes to me and says, I don't want to be the best. I just want to be average. <laughs> like nobody comes to me and says that, but the only thing better than being the best is being the best at getting better because being the best is fleeting. One, you, you may do everything right. And you may still not be the best for many different reasons, things in your control and outside of it. But when we're looking at long-term sustainability, we need to become and create systems to become the best at getting better for you. And so it's a never-ending finish line. It's an infinite goal to continually become the best version of you. And every time you show up and give your version of what best looks like, the, the bar for best just keeps creeping up. And so your best starts to get better. And so when we're looking at coaching other people, there's a couple things. Number one, we have to really pay attention to the boundaries of control. You can only control so much. There are things that are going to be within your circle of control, and there are going to be things that exist outside of it. Other people are one of the main things outside of it. (laughs) Now, what we can do 
is we can, like when somebody said this, like, well, there's, there should be another circle called influence. They said, okay, this is my question to you. How do you exert influence? And they said, oh, well, it's through communication, through teaching, through modeling. And I said, and where does that lie? Oh, within my control. And I said, exactly. So that we can't control the outcome of the influence we're trying to exert, but we can control how we exert influence in terms of communication, modeling, and those sorts of things. And so you want to first define where that lies. And a very simple way to do this is pull out a piece of paper, draw a circle in the middle of it. And in the middle of the circle, write all the things within your control and outside of it, write all the things outside of your control. And let that be kind of a serve as like this visual reminder of where your current mental currency, like where you're spending it currently. And then also like, okay, if I'm spending it so much on outside, these things outside, if I'm actually going to make an impact, it's not going to be existing in the things outside of my control. It's going to be existing within that circle. Now, the second part is asking yourself the question, how are you helping them to increase competence and their ability? So competence is your belief and your ability to execute something at a high level. And as you increase competence in somebody, you actually increase their confidence as well. Their confidence and their ability to handle difficult circumstances. And so as a leader, it's important to ask yourself, how are you helping your people become more competent? What are you doing to develop competence and readiness? So when they are put in these positions, they know how to effectively handle them. So I have a question for you then in terms of that, that kind of dynamic then of either coaching people or aiding people where, you know, we do have a lot of people that are leaders that are responsible for the building the competency and the confidence of the people underneath them, but they're not always you know, fully in tune with everything that you're talking about. It's for me, it's that, um, you know, the message on the plane, like put your own mask on first before you put on other people's masks. So um, do you find that people do sort of jump straight into like helping others before they help themselves? Oh, all the time, Hmm. all the time. It's very, very common. Actually, it's really common in leadership roles and roles where you are meant to serve others. It's so, like it is, believe it or not, it's hilarious. It's so common in my field. Mm. We preach this all the time, but I'll tell you what, we are probably the last people to take care of ourselves. And it's something that, I mean, I know myself and some of my colleagues, like we talk about all the time and like, how are you taking care of you? Because it's the foundation in which we operate off of. So it's kind of like choosing to build a house on a rocky foundation or a foundation that has a crack in it. When the weather hits, it's not going to be solid. That house is going to crumble at some point. And so if you want to be the best version for other people, you have to begin by being the best version for you and taking care of you. Your influence and your impact grows immensely. And like what you said with that analogy, when it comes to putting your oxygen mask on, it's a very simple question. How many people can you help if you put yours on last? (laughs) as much oxygen as you've got in your lungs. That's how long. And that's probably not going to be very long. If you put one on, how many more people can you help? Arguably, possibly the whole plane. And I I love what you said there because recognizing in yourself, particularly as somebody who coaches and you have a very, very motivating, very relatable, very passionate sort of public voice to help other people, but also, you know, acknowledging and recognizing that you, you have to work on yourself to that vulnerability 
is so refreshing. And do you think that in leaders, we need to see more of that, that kind of recognition that we are also frail ourselves, even those in leadership positions? Yes, 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 yes. It was interesting. I was actually on a call with, um, there was a couple hundred people on this call and it was a bunch of very competent, brilliant performers in the sales industry. And I had this moment where we were doing, um, I hop on this call and I, I teach them a principle and then I have time for hot seat afterwards. And anybody that can hop on and there's no, there's nothing off limits. You can ask anything. And essentially my goal is just to serve you in that time. And this gentleman gets on and he starts talking about his fear of his ex-wife coming back into his daughter's life who effectively abandoned him and his daughter at a young age when she was very young and everybody just like he had everybody's attention he started to really go into what it meant that she was coming back in and the fears he was experiencing and he was afraid that his what if she abandoned us again and all of these very real human emotions and when he was finished i paused and i said everybody on the call right now can you write in the chat if you suddenly feel closer to him? Mm. That chat lit up, <laughs> like lit up. It brought mm. him to tears. And I said, the power of vulnerability and what you just shared, you just, you look at how many people care about you. Look at how many, these are some of these people he doesn't even know well. Like they know of each other because they work in the same department, but they like, they don't even live close to each other. They may have never even met in person. And suddenly everybody felt closer as a result. And so I think it's important sometimes, you know, as leaders, sometimes we think we have to be perfect. We can't share some of our struggles, but I think that it's our struggles that form our strengths and the things that break us are often the things that bond us. And so if you're willing to share some of those, and I'm not saying share just to share and try to get attention in return, but when you share with a purpose, you would be shocked at how refreshing it feels to hear that from the opposite end and how humanistic it feels to hear that from the opposite end and how close people will feel to you as a result of it. I mean, there's obviously this sort of traditional perception of someone being mentally tough is not vulnerable or doesn't demonstrate vulnerability because they have everything under control or they're they're able to persevere through whatever emotions they're dealing with. But mental toughness, it, I mean, what I'm what I'm gaining from this is like it's also about recognizing when you're vulnerable and creating that space for that to exist. And therefore by demonstrating that, you're encouraging other people to also be comfortable with that vulnerability to persevere through to the point of strength. 100%. There's a definition I like to use. Mental toughness does not make you invincible. It makes you adaptable. Mm-hmm. I have people come to me a lot of the times. There's this one guy, there's one gentleman that came to me, um, CEO of this company. And he said, you know, Lauren, I'm, I, I want to hire you because I want you to solve my problems. And I told him, I said, well, then you're, uh, you need to probably look for somebody else. And he was like, confused by my response. And he goes, wait, what, what do you mean? Why? I said, because I, I can't solve your problems for you. What I do and what mental skills will do is they will give you, they will give you the ability, they will improve your ability to handle the problems that you have in front of you. They will not solve them for you. We don't take away fear. We change your relationship with it. 
We don't take away discomfort or self-doubt or any of these things. What we do is we change your relationship with it because the mental side, mental toughness is often about like accepting your reality. You don't have to like your reality, but accepting the fact that this is what's in front of me and choosing your response. And when you develop your mental skills, you can improve your response. It doesn't always mean you can change the reality that's in front of you. I mean, all of this sounds very relatable for, I think, the average person. But you, I mean, you coach and you have worked with some really exceptional people. And I know you talk about, you know, like an elite mindset and you work with elite athletes. So you've trained professional athletes, military personnel, business professionals. I mean, these are people that are arguably, I think people have a perception of them having their shit sorted, essentially. Would it surprise people to know that you, I mean, yeah, do you, do you encounter people in those positions where actually they're just like everybody else and they're struggling with all of this too? And they, they don't know where to start, just like every, like the common person. Glad you asked this because the answer to that is a hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> like you want to know the number one thing professional athletes come to me for mm. confidence. <laughs> Would that like, everybody's like, What? That person is making millions of dollars. That person is like, like, yes, confidence. And so it, again, it doesn't remove the human emotions that we feel. All it does, it it improves your ability to respond to them. And so I still have, I, I mean, every single professional athlete, CEO or otherwise is afraid of not being enough. They're afraid of not leading a fulfilling life. They're afraid of not succeeding. Some are actually afraid of succeeding because what that means, that they have to now show up and be that good all the time. All of those things, they exist from the, a person that is the least well-known or the, has the smallest job title, per se, to the person with the greatest. The biggest thing that changes is the stakes. A brand new draft pick at a high school and somebody in the major leagues oftentimes deal with very similar circumstances. The difference is the stakes are different. The stakes for somebody right being drafted is more so to prove yourself. The stakes for somebody at the major league level is because you don't want to be the one to mess up and lose it for the rest of your team. And so those circumstances change, but we're all human which is, I think, why when we were talking about vulnerability, everybody felt so close because suddenly everybody feels like they're on the same playing field because oftentimes we put these people on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and we go, I am not like that. Okay, yeah, maybe you can't throw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle. All right, I get that. I can't either. Okay, maybe you're not not having to manage a billion dollars, but I'll tell you what, the experiences as a human – and the pressure and the emotions and the psychology and the thoughts that you deal with to be able to do those things is not very different than the average human. You're obviously an incredible people person and and curious about people and when you want to help people, I mean, you can tell that. And obviously incredibly skilled to be able to do that with what you studied. So I'm curious, like, was there a point when you switched over into then like doing your master's in psychology and exercise science and, and kind of like developing your career instead of that coaching space that you realized, like, actually, I really like helping people and helping people to develop these types of skills? Well, first of all, thank you. That is very, very kind. And I don't take that lightly. Um, I, I can take on the burdens of others very easily. I can carry that weight and it impacts me in an, in a negative way sometimes. 
it was my senior year when I was, uh, it was third game into my senior year of college. I played collegiate soccer and I received my fifth concussion. And when I came off the field, I had to get a brain scan. And then the, the neurologist came in and he said, um, Lauren, it's not safe for you to play anymore. And mind you, I was like, I was not, I was never going to be like on the U S women's national team. Like I was very aware of that. However, I did have offers to play overseas and I see overseas and I wanted to travel and play, um, for a few years after college. And so suddenly like all these dreams that I had, um, were taken away and it was very hard. I went through this crazy, you know, identity crisis, not really knowing who I was. And in that journey, I found sports psychology and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, who would I have been if I would have known these things? And then I thought, how many people can I help now that I do? On the pivot that you had to make in your own life, that was sort of came your way versus, you know, something that you chose to do, but it's sort of the circumstances. I can imagine that it took a lot of mental resilience for you as well to be able to adapt to that and to build the resilience, to pivot your entire life and your dreams and to move on from that. Do you bring that kind of personal experience and the motivation that you built within yourself into your work as well? Yeah. Um, I think that there's, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to ask a client to do something I'm not willing to do myself because I think that there's something, there's something to say when you learn something from reading and then when you learn something, something from experience. And so I think what it's allowed me to do is have this deeper understanding with the people that I work with. Like I know that feeling of disappointment when something that you absolutely love is taken away from you and you have no, no ability to change it. Like I know what it's like to be told the thing that you are going to do for the rest of your life is no longer possible. And not because you can't do it, but because of this, like, because remembering your name at 40 is more important. Those really difficult moments that we go through as humans, I think are, again, it's what helps me to connect with the people that I work with on a different level. So yeah, I certainly bring, I can connect to how they're feeling because I can reconnect to how I felt. Yeah. And you also know firsthand what it's like to turn yourself around and pick yourself up and then put yourself on a path that actually impacts not just your own life and and builds those, you know, positive habits within yourself, but also how you can help others. And I've written down like a ton of things that I'm going to start to do to build, build better consistent habits for myself. But I do have one last question for you, Lauren, before I let you go. And it's what your go-to is when you're trying to look at something from a different light. It's funny. My, my husband loves when I tell this story because he really helped me in this moment. We were driving to Vegas and I got this, uh, I was, I was working in the car and I got this email that actually like literally pissed me off. It like really upset me. I don't know if you've ever gotten an email like that, but I was mm-hmm. like, are you kidding me? I was so mad like <laughs> at this email and I am so emotional, so frustrated, but also very disappointed and struggling to, you know, you know, when you kind of spiral down the path of like, oh my gosh, and then there's this and then there's this and like everything's wrong. Mm. He stopped me and he asked me this question. He said, what typically helps in moments like these? And without knowing it, what he did is he helped me to zoom out and take a different perspective. What it did is it got me out of the emotions I was feeling 
And it got me into my prefrontal cortex, which actually is a lot more rational thinking. And so it took me from my amygdala in my brain to my prefrontal cortex and got me really thinking in a rational perspective. And honestly, it tamed my emotions. And because you have to think about what's happened in the past, what works. And I'm like, well, what typically helps is not responding for 24 hours and giving myself time to be upset. And he goes, okay, well, then let's do that. Mm-hmm. Leaning into the logical mind, but also, I guess, leaning on your source of a different perspective, which is your husband, and being able to go to somebody who can sort of snap you out of your emotional state. Thank you so, so much for for coming on the show and sharing everything with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been incredible. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review or share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.